if you had told me a year ago that within a matter of five or six days, we were going to shift an entire institution to a remote online operation and still be able to deliver instruction, still be able to deliver student services and keep the trains running on time, I would have told you you were crazy. We can adjust when we need to. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. You have to keep your institution moving forward, otherwise you're just presiding. This statement, expressed by Dr. Andrew Jonas in this episode, are words to live by when not only leading an institution, but also charging forward in the midst of a global pandemic, which brought on endless pivots and unforeseen challenges that are not yet over. Host Salvatrice Kumo talks with Dr. Andrew Jonas about the future of work, the current state of the economy, where we move forward from here, and most importantly during this time, what it means to be flexible. Good morning, listeners. I am here today with Dr. Erica Andrejanis, Superintendent President of Pasadena City College. She's joining us today to talk about future of work, current state of the economy, and where do we move forward from this. So, Dr. Andrejanis, welcome. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Let's just jump right into it, shall we? Okay. Okay. All right. So here we are, May, 14th. whatever this is today, whatever day it's today the, is, is, you know, in 2020. It's my daughter's middle, birthday. Is it? <laughs> yes. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Happy Thank birthday. you. Please tell me. I was her doing that. something else 15 years ago today. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and um, it was much more joyful then than it is right, right now in the middle of this pandemic, right? That is um, true. Yes. It's uncertain times that we're feeling right now, mm-hmm. but it's not, there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel is what I'm trying to say. You know, what has the shutdown been like for you um, as the leadership, as the leader of Pasadena City College? What has that been like for you? Well, it's been a leadership challenge like no other that I've ever had. Uh, When I was president of Los Angeles Valley College, I dealt with a ransomware attack where we had to pay hackers 
$28,000 in Bitcoin to get our servers back. And I thought at the time, I can't imagine anything being more challenging than this. And then along comes the coronavirus, which actually is way more than that ever was. That, that looks like a cakewalk now. So for me, it's been an interesting experience, partially because I think it's both challenging and I think my leadership style lends itself to this kind of challenge because I have always felt like I could handle, you know, changes really quickly. And, you know, as we know, the landscape changes from day to day. And I adopted my long held belief that we should always be Semper Gumby or always flexible. And that's proven to be very important in this crisis because, you know, as I've said in many instances, both uh, 10 weeks ago and now, you know, the information I have today is different from the information I had yesterday is different from the information I have, I will have tomorrow. And so for me, the leadership challenge is trying to remain calm, although admittedly, I'm not always calm, but I try to be for the most part. And just, you know, try to keep my eye on what is best for the, our students, what's best for our faculty and staff. And how do I help? How do I help everybody move forward? And in some ways, I think there's a natural inclination to say, okay, this is a crisis. We just need to stop where we are and hunker down. And from a very physical uh, perspective, yes, we need to hunker down and make sure that we're safe. But in terms of the institution, we still need to move forward. You know, we still need to teach students. We still need to think about what that next curriculum change is that we need. We still need to think about, well, what's that grant we're going to apply for? And, you know, all those kinds of things. So I think it's a balance of protect, but also move on. And when I did some leadership training, the current president of Harvard, Larry Bacow, said to everybody who was doing this training, you know, if you're not moving your institution forward, then you're just presiding as a president. And those words really stuck with me back in 2014, right before I uh, took my presidency. And I really embraced them as a president that you have to keep your, your institution moving forward. Otherwise, you're just presiding. That was really great. Those words really resonated with me. And when I think about really where we are here with workforce development, our institutions are built to produce new talent and to upskill existing talent. You know, how does this, or, you know, b between you and your colleagues and, and, and leaders and other business leaders around the area, how do we, how do we continue in your, in your mind, how do we continue to prepare our students for the future of work and still train, staying true to the vision while we're in this, you know, global chaos? I think part of it is really to look at where this might mean that some jobs that were there before aren't there anymore. And we need to really take a look at what we're actually training people to do. I mean, we know in the Pasadena area and we know in Los Angeles County and in the and in the corridor that exists like between USC and Cal State LA and all of the biotech out there 
that there is a growing need and a growing job market out there for folks who have clean room technology skills and they're not they're not highly skilled you know they're middle skills kinds of things and i think we're going to see more business i think we're going to see more business development that involves that kind of work and we might see it we might see it blossom into other light manufacturing jobs so i think we need to be open to what would that look like and it's and i think part of the problem in you know we've struggled i think in many ways as an economy in california around when people say light manufacturing what comes to mind is still you know a big oppressive factory and and dust and grime flying all over the place and you know the assumption that it's just going to be people who go into those jobs right out, right out of high school and the fact is that's not light manufacturing and even something as simple or as straightforward as people would think like fixing cars for example cars are now more about electronics than they are about understanding how a carburetor works. Obviously, you need to know that and you need to know how fuel injection systems work. But really what you need to know is how to use a computer and you need to know how to manipulate a a computer program that's doing a diagnostic. And I think the mistake is in thinking, well, if there's a computer diagnostic machine, then students aren't gonna need critical thinking skills. And the fact is they need even more critical thinking skills because, you know, the basics behind computers is garbage in, garbage out, logic in, logic out. And so if you, you know, how do you, how do people assess what's really happening? So I think that's one piece of it. And then I think the other pieces, piece of it is around thinking about what customer service is going to be like, because we know at some point we're going to go back to a service-based economy where people are fully employed, but it may not be that they're fully employed face-to-face. They might be fully employed in a different manner. And so what does that look like? Right. And you hit something, you said something, you hit it right on the head. You said critical thinking. That's something that our machines, our AI, robots, all that good stuff, right? They don't have that. And so how do we then prepare our students and that they're equipped with having those human skills like soft skills, like critical thinking, like creativity, like problem solving, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to be more valuable and to be ahead of the competition when securing uh, employment. And specifically around these occupations that yes, you know, AI is, there's this, there's AI is here. It's taking over a lot of what we do, but it's certainly not taking over our human capacity and our human, our natural human abilities. And so as an institution, when are there, would you say that there are partnerships that we should be paying attention to in light of preparing our students for the workforce? What is your vision on our partnerships that we, that we think we need to have in order to fulfill our vision? Well, I think the number one thing is to work with our local business sectors. And I know you've done, you've done some great work in bringing in the various industries and having industry leaders there talk about what it is they need in their future 
workforce. And I think we need to do a lot of, or as much what we call reverse engineering of our curriculum. Because, you know, I can remember back when I was a career technical dean at Santa Barbara City College back, you know, 2001, 2002, we had a program called Learn to Earn. And it was a 15-unit certificate in our computer applications program. It was one semester. A student could get everything, you know, in the course of a semester. Business English, uh, the various applications, you know, what, what was what we now know as the Microsoft suite, you know, all of those kinds of skills. They could get it quickly. They could get out into the work world. They could take the MAUS certification and off they went. That may not be what's what employers need now. You know, it's like people who say, well, I want to be a professional photographer. I want to get hired at a company as a photographer. That's that's great, except that when we all walk around with these amazing cameras on our phones and Apple keeps making the camera better, the need for discrete photographers at companies just isn't there. So then the question becomes, Okay, if you're going to hire someone, what is the range of skills that you need them to have? Do you need them to have the skills with Word? Do you need them to have Outlook? Do you need them, but do you also need them to go be able to take a a really good picture of something and then incorporate it into a document that you need? And how much website building and HTML skills do you need? I mean, those are the kinds of things we need to understand from employers because the days of hiring this one person to do this one task are are very quickly evaporating. And I think that where we are going to see the biggest issue in the coming like 10 to 20 years is actually in our own public em- public employment sector. Because the way that we employ people in public sector employers are large in our area as well as well as elsewhere. The way we employ people is based on a baby boomer idea that you get hired, you do this one job, you might get an additional skill, so then you work your way up a career ladder. And it's very much focused on a single skill or a single skill set. Right. Whereas now, especially with the way that companies are economizing, they want people who have multiple skills. And that critical thinking piece that we're talking about is when somebody calls and they have an issue, you need to be able to solve that issue in that single call. Whereas 20 years ago, we somebody might have said, oh, I'll transfer you to so-and-so. There's nobody, there's not going to be anybody to transfer them to. So how is it that we help individuals be able to answer all of those questions? And, and the best example I can give is, and this is our own industry that does that needs to change, and that is we hire people to be admissions and records clerks or technicians, and we say, this is what you do. And then we hire people who do financial aid, and this is what you do. And trying okay. to move public employee the public employee sector into the idea that maybe what we need to do is hire a single person who knows admissions and records and financial aid because they are inextricably, you know, linked. 
Right. That's where we need to move. But our own industry is is very slow to do that. And so it's kind of ironic that here we are out there saying to the local businesses, what can we do? We can make your employees be as versatile as possible. They're going to have critical thinking skills. They're going to do this. And we don't even do it in our own environment. Right. So I think what we're going to find, because again, public employment, a lot of times is modeled after the idea that you go to work for an institution you stay at that institution. I mean, we have people at our college who've worked there 40, 45 years. That's mm-hmm. not going to be the worker of the future. You know, absolutely not. Pe- yeah. And so, and, and it's not just our college, it's colleges, it's public hospitals, it's public agencies. Those are the places where I think there's a disconnect between what the agency needs and the way they're hiring people in and the kinds of skills we should be doing. So I think there's there's a larger picture here of both what should we be doing for business and industry, but also what should we be doing to help our public sector colleagues and as well as our, our own world to adjust. Because I can tell you the Gen Z, the Gen Y, all these people, they are not going to want to be in these rigidly defined roles Business knows it, so they're starting to ask us to have more flexibility, to teach people how to multitask and do all those things, but we as an institution have to do that too. Right. Erica, you're right. There's, there's as an education entity, there is a disconnect for us as well. We're not seeing hyper-focused positions as we did in the past, we are seeing like cross-pollination of talent. We're seeing that ourselves, how we conduct business needs to be much different and relevant to the rest of the world, right? Mm -hmm. And because of where we are right now, it was kind of a test for us, right? Like we find ourselves, this remote environment really wasn't as simple as we thought it was. Or it right. could be, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And and it and it was very eye-opening to us, perhaps workflow gaps or gaps in talent, right? Or gaps in systems, gaps in, in our infrastructure. And and we're not alone in this, of course, naturally. But what stood out to you in regards to remote education during this time? Do you think that any of our current approaches to online learning will be permanent? Or are you seeing is this going to be our new normal, do you think, right, given our current situation? And keeping in light of the of the gaps that we have as an institution across the board. Again, this is not just us. This is higher ed in general. Do you think that, you know, what's out for you the most? And do you think that this is something that's going to be permanent for us? You know, I think what stood out the most was that we could turn on a dime and get everything up on, you know, remote. Obviously it wasn't perfect. And that was why my message to the campus was, it's okay if it's not perfect, Uh, you know, do your best. We understand these are difficult times. But if you had told me a year ago that within a matter of five or six days, we were going to shift an entire institution to a remote online operation and still be able to deliver instruction, still be able to deliver student services and, you know, 
kind of keep the trains running on time, I would have told you you were crazy. So I think (laughs) what it shows is that we can adjust when we need to. I think the key now, and in terms of new normal, I think this is the new normal for a year because I think we might be able to do some face-to-face stuff in the fall, but not for the entire fall. And the fact is the lack of a, of a vaccination coupled with what we know will be a flu season in November and December is going to lead to us being, you know, closed uh, to the public and online, probably for the bulk of 20, 2021. So I think what we, what I have seen is that there are faculty out there who would have said, there is absolutely no way my class can be taught online. There is absolutely no way that I can teach this. And suddenly they found out that they can and right. and they have done it. So that's the good part of it. The real issue in my mind is I think we will see enhancements to online education where faculty actually want to continue teaching online after the pandemic crisis has passed. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, we are humans. And fundamentally, the idea behind going to college, the idea behind being a college is about being part of a community. So I think you may see an uptick in online education, but I do not believe, as some people think, that it's going to take the place of face-to-face instruction. There are many, many students out there and faculty for whom this has been terrible because it isn't what they signed up for. It isn't how they enjoy the classroom or how they enjoy learning. And I, and I'll tell you from my own perspective, I taught online back from 2007 to 2009 at Cal State Dominguez Hills. And it was a humanities class, two humanities classes. And And it was fine. It was what was available. So I did it. Well, I was teaching at Cal State LA and this semester and I had to transition my law and policy in post-secondary ed from campus-based class to Canvas. And I did it just like all the faculty did. But I've got to tell you, two hours and 45 minutes on a Zoom trying to teach content and elicit, you know, feedback from my students and they were troopers, but it was hard. It was really hard and really draining. I bet. So I think what we'll find a year from now is that the online education, the quality of online education that we offer will be the better. It will be stronger. And we will have people who have tried online education who say, you know, it's not for me. And that's okay because there are many ways to learn. And I think Part of the reason that there are issues around how online education is funded, especially concerns on the part of the federal government and Title IV funding, is that the definition of what constitutes online education and the understanding of it is not really up to date. And what was online education back when the Higher Education Act was last reauthorized in 2008 and what it is now is like night and day. And so what I'm hoping is that people will see the quality has improved because the technology has improved, because the pedagogy has improved. So 
it is good, but it's not for everyone. And I really am concerned by some people out there saying, oh, well, now that colleges have done it online, there's no reason to ever go back to campus. And that just isn't true. That's right. And community colleges, as much as we think that, you know, there's always a saying, that, oh, you know, we're just not quick enough. We're not nimble enough. We're not flexible enough. Right. Well, that really, that, that proved us wrong, right? And I yeah, think exactly. That, <laughs> I think that community colleges by far have been the most responsive and the most nimble during what we're kind of being faced with right now in con- in comparison to four-year universities. I think that we have that, you know, we are a community college. There's the, the word community is in it. Right. And as such, you know, we need to be relevant and accessible to every mm-hmm. stakeholder in our district and within the right. San Diego Valley region. You know, the region itself is home to 2 million residents and many, many types of businesses and industries, right? Right. Do you think that... Pasadena City College can best make a difference in advancing our local economic, our local economy and and the community at large? Well, I think we can, you know, partially because we have the Small Business Development Center as part of PCC. And so those small businesses that need help, even without the payroll protection program, you know, all of that, you know, businesses that need to understand what their place is in the market, where their potential clients are, how they can market themselves, how they can grow their business. We have that, you know, we have that service at our campus. So I think that's a very positive model. I think the other is that we really want to be out in the community and we want to go into businesses and say, what is it you need? Do you need soft skills, customer training, because, you know, especially once we're able to really be a full service economy, once again, you know, the expectations for good customer service just continue to grow. In some ways, it's a digital expectation that things should be easily found digitally, that things should be easily serviced digitally. But it's also about the fact that people expect things to be better and they expect them to be right. In a way, I don't think they were 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, you wanted them to be right, but this almost expectation that things will be right just because you've paid for a service or you have a certain expectation, that puts a lot of pressure on businesses. And so I feel like what we're poised to do is to help them, whether it's with customer service training or supply chain logistics, you know, how do you make sure that you have the right amount of materials or supplies on hand, uh, cost accounting, how do you figure out how you build up your, your reservoir of supplies, but you don't bankrupt yourself by doing that. And, and, you know, that comes from, again, having been a career technical dean, and the number of programs I had at Santa Barbara City College, where cost accounting cost, whatever was part of pretty much every curriculum, part of the certificate or degree programs that we did. And I think that's something that we do great. I think our, of course, our health sciences programs will be vital going forward because the healthcare needs of our county, of our local 
area are only going to increase in the coming years. They're not going to decrease. So the extent to which we can fill the, that need, right now we have, an, I believe it's a non-credit medical assisting program that should be bigger than it is. And that's going to be one of the things we work on, especially when we're able to get clinicals for uh, students again. But we have to start thinking about, okay, what else is there that we're not doing in the healthcare area? Should we be doing more front office work? Should we be doing more medical building and coding? Not a full-blown right. health information technology program, but what is it that medical offices need? So I think there are so many little, there, there are areas, small and large, that we can have an impact on just based on the curriculum we already have, both credit and non-credit, mm -hmm. and not for credit, as well as what we can develop, we just need, you know, just come and tell us. And just as businesses right now need to pivot and relook at their their business model, so do we. Mm -hmm. um, that's our business model. Our business model is our is our domain expertise within these specialized certificates and within, to your point, credit, non credit, and not for credit. Right. Uh, right. And and with other service arms of the college, like the SBDC and like the Freeman Center that helps prepare students, you know, engaging with industry and getting them ready for the workforce, getting them ready for that occupational skill. Uh, now more than ever, I think, is when we're going to see kind of like this rebirth mm -hmm. and and recalibration yeah. of our existing services. I, but I think I it's think... just going to get amplified in some to some degree. Right. But I also think we have to be prepared because, you know, with this crisis, people are reassessing what do I actually need people to do? That's right. And how many people do I need? And even, it, you know, the kind of technology that's being implemented or thought about or developed in order to reduce human interaction. And a person, and a perfect example is not that long ago, I was in an airport. Well, it was at least 10, year, 10 weeks ago. Uh, I was in an <laughs> airport and there were boarding pass readers as you walk onto hmm. a plane instead mm -hmm. of, somebody there to, you know, take your ticket or to take your phone and scan it. So, you know, great. You can get your ticket on your phone or you can print it out, but it has a QR code, right? So that's great. And it will probably speed up the boarding process, but that means that one or two people in that, in, in that moment are mm -hmm. not employed. Right. And so what are we going to do about that? Like if they're not employed there, then what, what is the next thing they could do? And that's, that's kind of the thing that concerns me the most mm -hmm. about our job market and about our technology, because technology has made so many things in our life easier. But the fact is that technology will continue to right. diminish the need for certain jobs and right. the number of people who need to be employed. And we haven't really looked at that as, as a society and, and the impact that it, that it means and mm -hmm. that it has. And, and when I was at the a competition, the Bellwether Award competition several years ago, when I was still president of Valley College, we were up for a Bellwether Award and 
And at that conference, there was a guy there who'd written this, you know, book about the future of automation. And he had a video where he showed, I think it was a factory in South Korea or someplace like that, or it was a graphic of one where it was, there was one big machine that was making sure that everything kept in place. And there was one human to make sure that the machine was properly calibrated. Right. That one human and that Mm -hmm. machine took the place of like 200 people. Right. So that's a reality. So then the question we have, I think, as, as a society, both from a larger macro level, but also looking at it from our own local economy is when that happens, what do we do with those 199 people who are no longer on that factory floor? And that's, where I'm concerned the most about what do we do to help businesses see both be technologically advanced, but also see the value of the people that they need to hire to help their businesses grow and to keep our economy going. That's right. We also know that every five minutes, there are three new occupations being developed. Yeah. And yet, right. And then we also have the variable of, or the reality, not even the variable, the reality that in 2018 alone, we know that there was about 1.4 million jobs that went unfilled because of, Mm -hmm. because of there's a skills gap yet, you know, yet, you know, there's a skills gap and we're producing the talent and there's such huge disconnect. I think that that's what you're really touching on is that, you know, there are positions out there there are right. jobs out there but they're different and they're how different. do we how do we connect how do we bridge well i think um, we need to do i think we need to do the work on both sides i think the one right. thing is to help employers really understand what are the skills they think they need because in some ways the employers are employing old definitions of skills onto the new jobs and they don't even realize they're doing it Mm-hmm. So what they're doing is saying, well, if I don't see these key words in your resume, then you don't have the skills. So that's one piece is helping them understand how do you parse out from from a resume or from an interview what transferable skills an individual has. Because the days of saying, I have trained to do X and I know exactly how to do X and that's the only thing you're ever going to ask me to do are done. But employers aren't thinking that way. So I think we need to help employers. On the flip side of it, and I do a lot of mentoring with folks and I've looked at countless CVs and I've looked at countless letters of application. I try to help people see You know, you say the job requires X and you're saying you don't have that skill, but look, what you've done over here is basically the same thing. You just did it in a different industry. So what you want to say is I did this, which is very similar to the requirements of this job because it requires these skills or it requires this way of thinking. Or So I think that's part of our task as a college that you know promotes and and works on economic development and job development is to work on both sides of that equation because in some ways the people employers need are right in front of their faces and they don't know it because they themselves are functioning with an old definition of what a skill looks like on a piece of paper and when somebody talks about it in an interview 
That's really good advice. Really good advice, especially to the incoming student at PCC and, and new grads out there. Yeah, definitely. Right. Um, it's that value proposition is, you know, staying competitive. And in order to do that, it's being able to, to clearly articulate and market yourself in a way that shows, yes, you're saying this, but allow me to share with you what that may look like in this role. We don't, you know, we, we, and that's true, you know, yes, it says, for example, you know, computer software, I need, you know, a business says, I need someone that has computer software skills. Well, that could mean anything, anything, right, anything, but it's up to, right, it's up to the applicant, it's up to the one that's applying for that position to say, allow me to share a little bit more with you on how I fit into that. Well, a good example is how I've sort of progressed through my career. And that is every job I've applied for, there's always been something in the job description that I didn't have experience in. And I was really, and what I would do in both my letter of application, as well as in my interview was say, I see the job requires, and I'll give an example when I you know, was applying to be at Santa Barbara City College as the dean, one of the requirements was to write and manage grants. I'd never done that. So what I did in my letter of application, and then when I was being interviewed was, I said, you know, I see that the that the position requires grant writing and management. And I've never, I've never done either one of those things. However, I am a very strong writer, I've done blah, 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 And I haven't managed a grant, but I've managed academic programs. I've managed processes for getting things done. And I think there's a lot of similarity between you have a project or something that needs to get done. What are the deliverables? Although I doubt I used deliverables back in 2000. Um, You know, this is how I would address it. And so I got the job. The first thing, my first year, I wrote two grants and I got both of them. And then when I applied, yeah. yeah, And, and then when I applied to be president of Valley College, LA Valley College, I had never done, I'd never really been responsible for fundraising. I had worked with donors in my capacity as a career technical dean at Santa Barbara at Oxnard. I had no fundraising responsibility other than to go to one event a year. But what I did was I talked about it. Like, no, I, I've never been responsible for fundraising, but I understand the components of a good fundraising operation are blah, 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 blah. And if I were to get the job, I would be really excited to do whatever, you know. And so the second I got there, that was the first thing I did was work with the foundation, try to move, you know, get some programs. So so I think and I always give this advice to folks like it's OK to say what you what experience you don't have as long as you say how you believe what you do know how to do translates into that because what that communicates to the employer is that you've given some thought to it that you recognize what your skills deficit is and you have a plan for how you would get those skills based on what you believe you already know how to do and again this is where we need to help both sides of the equation how do we help employers value that way of articulating what somebody's skills are and how do we help the potential employee be able to recognize and articulate that transfer of skills and knowledge. That's right. Keyword, keyword transfer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Erica. I mean, this has been such valuable information for our listener. Erica, one piece of advice that you can give to our listener who is a student, to our listener who is a faculty member, or to our listener who is an employer, what would be one key takeaway piece of advice that you'd like them to know? You know, I think I'm going to go back to something I said earlier, and and what's been my mantra is be Semper Gumby, always be flexible. Uh, if you're a student and you and you thought your entire life that you were going to come in and take one particular major or certificate or whatever, you know, be flexible and be open to the fact that there are ideas, there are disciplines, there are jobs and professions out there that you have probably never thought about and you would probably enjoy. You just have to give yourself permission to stray from that idea that you thought you were coming in to do. And, you know, I say that as somebody who went to college believing I was going to be a journalism major. I was going to be the next, you know, Woodward and Bernstein. It was going to be awesome. (laughs) And then two semesters in about the last thing I wanted to do was be a journalist. And it really, and it was, you know, rethinking it. So I think, you know, Semper Gumby, be flexible. I think to faculty across the disciplines, I think the key is that I often don't like it when people say, well, there's the academic and the vocational programs, because the fact is that whether it's career technical or it's the liberal arts or it's the sciences, it's all academic and it's all about your career. So I would love it if faculty could embrace the idea that even if they're not teaching in a CTE program, they are teaching career skills and information to students. And that that's not a bad mm-hmm. thing. That's, that's, that's your right. job. Yep. And there is no distinction because we certainly don't want to live in a world where CTE programs are not academic because then right. what is, why are we awarding credit and why are we awarding degrees? It's all academic and it's all career. And then lastly, I would say to employers, tell us what you need. Tell us what you need and we will work with you. We will get you the, the, the employees you need, the training you need, help with your business, whatever you need. We're here. We are, we are really here to help you. Well, thank you so much, Erica. Really appreciate your time this morning, especially on your daughter's birthday. Please give her a big <laughs> hug and um, birthday oh, wishes girl. from all of us here at the PCC EWD podcast and everyone here on campus. Big Great. hugs and birthday wishes. Thank you. And thanks for having me on the podcast. And I'm a big podcast person. So I, this is really exciting. And, you know, thanks for really trying to highlight what it is your area does and what the college does and how we really are a huge partnership between the college, our local community, business, and everybody we serve and they serve. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast presented by Pasadena City College. If you'd like to get involved and have resources to share or be a guest on the show, you can find a link to our webpage in the show notes. Also, don't forget to subscribe and tell us your thoughts about the show. 
You can look forward to new episodes weekly every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.